your own Bible, there should be a pew Bible uh, somewhere in front of you, and that will be page 933. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is uh, where we're going to get started. We are in the midst of a series called Counterfeit Gospels, uh, Counterfeit Gospels, and we're in part three of Counterfeit Gospels, and I've entitled my sermon this morning, The Gospel Defined. The Gospel Defined. So as you're turning in your Bibles, uh, flipping to uh, page 933 or to 1 Corinthians 15, I'll let you do that. And then we'll pray one more time and ask God to bless the preaching and reading of his word, and uh, then we'll, we'll dive in. So let's do that. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we're grateful for a wonderful morning. Uh, we're grateful for the wonderful proclamation and news that your son, Jesus Christ, is not in the tomb, uh, that he's not dead, uh, that he's not rotting, and that his bones are not withering, but he indeed is at your right hand and that he is interceding for us. He is our risen God, our risen Savior, our reigning King, and one day he will come back uh, to raise us from the dead who have placed our faith in him to restore us, to re- restore all things, and, and indeed all creation will be restored and made new, and there will be judgment, and there will be grace for those who have placed their faith in Christ, and we're so grateful for the risen and reigning Jesus Christ. So Jesus, would you be among us as we speak about your gospel, as we speak about your life, as we speak about your death, as we speak about your burial, and as we speak about your resurrection and appearing uh, to many people. I pray, Christ, that we would bring you honor and glory. I pray that we would speak and hear rightly of you. Spirit, we invite you to come. We ask that you would please come and fill, fill us now so that we can receive your word, so that we can understand your word, so that we can be convicted by your word, so that we can be transformed by the the word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that. And Spirit, I ask that you would come and be with me. Help me to speak clearly, powerfully, accurately your word so that in all things the Father uh, would receive glory. We thank you for your presence among us. We beg for it. We ask for it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So part three of Counterfeit Gospels, the gospel defined. Uh, by way of quick review, I want to catch us up on where we've been. Uh, in part one of Counterfeit Gospels, we saw the reality of counterfeits. And we saw from the book of Galatians chapter one that there was the reality of counterfeit gospels in the first century and that there continues to be the reality of counterfeit or false gospels that continue even to this day. We not only saw that uh, there was the reality of counterfeits, but we saw the nature of counterfeits. That is, what are they like? We saw that to believe and to buy a counterfeit was essentially a desertion of God. We saw that all counterfeits... Does that sound reasonable? Good? All right, wonderful. Doug, thanks. 
as I put it on. Da, da, da. Okay, we back? Okay. Wonderful. Back online, all right. In part two of Counterfeit Gospels, we saw the twofold wreckage of counterfeits. That is, what, what, what wreckage, what kind of a results do counterfeits have when we buy into them? And we basically saw that there was a twofold wreckage. Number one, that it, counterfeits cause a lack of gospel clarity. That is, we fail to understand what the gospel is. And number two, it causes a lack of gospel confidence. That is, because we don't know what the true gospel is, we lack confidence in the power of the gospel to save lives. And so that's where we've been, part one and part two. Uh, I want to thank Jerry also for those of you who had the privilege of hearing Jerry McCorkle. Uh, even though he was barely on time, I hear, uh, he did make it, and I think he is uh, almost as uh, directionless as I am, uh, but uh, so my sympathy is there. But he actually did an excellent job, and Jerry McCorkle short- shared with us last Sunday what he called the wide angle of the gospel. And so what he talked about was the big story uh, in which the gospel fits into. And so he talked about creation. We were made for a relationship with God. We talked about he talked about the fall, how we've fallen from that relationship uh, from God because of our sin. He talked about rescue, how ultimately God was on a rescue plan that centered upon Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin and from his wrath. And then finally, there will be restoration, a restoration of all things. And so he kind of took a wide-angle view of the gospel, uh, which was actually what I was going to preach on today. And so what we're going to do instead is we are going to uh, zoom the camera lens in a little bit. Maybe you have a video camera, and you, and you want to get the big picture and so you zoom it all the way out, right, so that you can see everything that's going on. That's what Jerry did last week. But what I want to do this week is, uh, using the illustration, I want to zoom in with my camera, and I want to zoom in close on the gospel and define the gospel and what exactly it is. And so we're going to zoom in a little bit and define the gospel. Um, and so uh, after, after that review, let's kind of jump in here. I was doing some uh, research for this, and I came to find, actually what I did is I typed up Google, and I said something to the effect of spotting counterfeits, or identifying counterfeits on Google, and then I hit send or go, and it came up with a whole list of things that basically were helping you and I uh, spot counterfeit bills. Uh, The very first page that came up was actually a government page. It was actually the page of the Secret Service, and so I thought this was interesting, and so I pulled up this Secret Service website, and they actually had several suggestions for us to help us spot counterfeit bills. Uh, I'm going to share with you the, the, the top three ways that the Secret Service tells us that we can spot counterfeit bills, because what I've learned from my really brief Google search is that if you want to identify a counterfeit, if you want to identify a fake bill, the best way to do that is, is to know the what? is to know the real thing. And so this is what they're helping us to do, three different ways. And so we're going to play a little game. Uh, the first way that they told us, from the, straight from the website, uh, to identify a counterfeit is this. The portrait, that is the portrait of the president that is on the bill. It says the genuine portrait appears lifelike and stands out distinctly from the background. By contrast, the counterfeit portrait is usually lifeless and flat. And so from that description, I'm going to throw up a picture of a real bill and a counterfeit bill, and I want you to vote and tell me which one you think is the real one and which one is the counterfeit. I'll give you just a quick moment to peer over that, and you can tell me what you think is real and what is fake. Okay, who thinks the one on the left, right here, your left, who thinks that is the real? Raise your hand. Okay, several. Uh, brave souls. Who thinks the one on the, on the right is the, the real one? 
Okay, several of you. Very good. Uh, the one on the left is actually the real, the real deal, and the one on the right is the counterfeit. Okay, very good. What about the second one? The second way, they said not only do you look at the portrait of the original one, but you also look at the border. That is the border of the bill. And so it says the fine lines in the border of the genuine bill are clear and they are unbroken. On the counterfeit, the lines in the outer margin and scroll work may be blurred and indistinct. And so clear and crisp and unbroken are blurred and indistinct. Okay, number two, I want you to guess which is the real and which is the fake. I'll take you a few seconds just to, to peer at it. Who thinks the one on your left is the original? Okay, brave soul. Who thinks this one is the original? And you are all correct. Very good. So you've got it down, I think. But we'll do the last one. So not only do you look at the portrait, not only do you look at the border, but uh, they suggest that you look at the serial numbers. Genuine serial numbers have a distinct style and are evenly spaced. On the counterfeit, the serial numbers may differ in color or shade of ink from the treasury seal. The numbers may not be uniformly spaced or aligned. This one, I think, is, is the trickiest, so let's take a peek. Take a peek. You tell me which one you think is the real and which is the counterfeit. Okay, on your left, who thinks that that is the real? Okay, what about the right? Who thinks that's the real one? Okay, a few. Okay, it is actually the one on the left is the, is the real one, and the one on the right is the counterfeit. Um, very good. You guys did excellent, especially after that first one. Let's move, move on. The point simply here is that the government wants us to know the difference between the real thing and a counterfeit, and it gives us three marks, three tests, if you will, to determine what is real and what is not. And I would suggest to you that as we look at the definition of the gospel found in 1 Corinthians 15, we will also see three distinct marks, if you will, three indicators from what Paul and God ultimately says about what the gospel is that will help us determine this is the real and this is the fake. So what are those three things? What are, how do we define the gospel? What are the three marks, distinguishing features of the gospel? If you're taking notes, jot these three things down. It's a very simple outline. The gospel is made up of three things, essentially, from this passage. Number one, the gospel is made up of Jesus' life. The gospel involves Jesus' life. Secondly, the gospel involves Jesus' death. Thirdly, the gospel involves Jesus' resurrection. And so if you want to look for distinguishing marks that make it different from the counterfeit, the true gospel has these three marks. So let's do this. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, together, and then we'll look at these three distinguishing marks. Verse 1, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. And by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born the reading of God's very word. So let's 
let's look really closely at each of these three distinguishing marks of the gospel. First of all, Jesus' life. The first element of the gospel is Jesus' life. Uh, Now, as you read closely verses 3 and 4, you don't see a specific mention of the life of Christ, but I would suggest to you that it's certainly implied because somebody can't die unless they first lived, right? And so I think implicit here, and in particular in other uh, scriptures where the the gospel is defined, we see that Jesus's life is a very, very important part of the good news, that is the gospel. Uh, And so what I want us to, to hear is this. We all are familiar, most of us, when we did our gospel clarity test, when we did text message Sunday, most all of you, when I asked what the gospel was, included the idea that Jesus died. And most of you, included the idea that Jesus died for our sins, which is how Paul defines it. Uh, But the point that I first want to make is that not only did Jesus die for you and me, he also lived for you and me. Not only did Jesus die for me in my place, but Jesus lived for me and for you in your place before God. Turn with me now to the book of Romans, which is just one uh, or or two, actually one over. So turn with me to Romans chapter 5. The text will be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 5. In Romans 5, verse uh, verse 19 is what we're going to look at. Paul draws this big comparison. He's talking about Adam and how Adam has brought sin into the whole world and how it's affected the whole world. And then he compares the sin of Adam to the perfect righteous obedience of Jesus Christ and how the obedience of Jesus Christ also is beneficial to those who place their faith in him. And in verse 19, Paul makes it clear that the life of Christ is essential to the good news, that Jesus not only died for us, but he lived for us, that is, so that we could be declared right and forgiven, that is, Jesus lived a perfect and holy and sinless, sinless and obedient life in our place. Verse 19, Paul says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the, through the what church? Through the obedience. Through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Let me flesh this out just for a second. He begins in verse 19, and he's drawing this contrast, this comparison. He says, just as though the disobedience of the one man, who do you think that is? Adam. The one man, Adam. He says, just as Adam sinned, he disobeyed, and many, that is all humanity that ever lived, were made to be sinners. Because Adam sinned, all of us were born into this world, bent towards sin, separated from God, and this is a not, not a good thing. And his disobedience spread and had effects. But notice he compares Adam's disobedience to Christ's obedience. And he says, so also through the obedience of the one man, that is Jesus Christ, the many, that is those who will place their faith in him, will be made righteous. And so notice the contrast. Jesus lived a perfect, obedient life for me and for you. Because God's standard for any human being to be with him is what? is perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, perfect obedience to every, every, every law, every command that he's ever given. It's not only that we don't do the things we're not supposed to do, but we have to do the, th- we should, we need, need to do the things that we should do. Sins of omission, sins of commission. And what this passage is telling us is that God had this standard, and for any human being, for me and you, to be able to be in his presence, there had to be someone, some human being, to do that. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met any perfect people. 
Have you? I've not met anyone who is perfect, uh, but the scriptures testify over and over that the life that Christ lived was perfect. I mean, just, just fathom that for a second. There was no Old Testament command that Jesus broke. There was no moral implication that Jesus ever committed. There was no sin from his lips. There was no temptation that he ever yielded to. There was no sin, even in his mind. He was perfectly obedient, perfectly obedient. And he did that because we could not. He lived the life of perfect obedience so that his righteousness, his obedience could be given to us, could be credited to us. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a wonderful gift to be given. Not just the death of Christ, but the life of Christ. Trevin Wax in his book, Counterfeit Gospels, puts it this way. The gospel writers tell the story of Jesus in a way that highlights Christ's fulfillment of God's law in our place. The gospel writers show us that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus succeeds where Israel failed, and glory to God, Jesus succeeds where you and I fail. Because Adam sinned, we are guilty before God. Because Christ obeyed, we are declared righteous. In God's sight. And so the first point is that the life of Christ is an essential part of the gospel. Jesus not only lived, died for you, Jesus lived for you as our representative. So I want to share with you a story, and maybe I've shared with it before, uh, but forgive me for not. Uh, When I was in high school, I played basketball. Actually, I sat the bench on the basketball team. I don't know if you've ever been there or not. I, I played basketball in practice because they let me practice. Uh, they didn't let me play very much, and so my seat, uh, part of the team, was kind of towards the end of the bench. If you've ever been there, you know what I mean, kind of the last two or three spots away from the coach. You know that you're not going to play, right? If the coach doesn't want you near him, <laughs> then you don't have much of a chance. So that, that's, that's how I played basketball in high school. I really enjoyed it. Um, I just wasn't the best. I think it was because I was short, but neither here nor there. And I couldn't make a shot, but that doesn't, you know, that too, you know. Um, Anyways, so in practice, one of the things that our coach would do is he would emphasize the importance of free throws, right? You got to make your free throws. They're free points. And so uh, what he would do is he would line us up on the baseline when it was time for conditioning, and we would do sprints, you know, the kind that you hate. We go to this line and back, and that line and back, and that line and back. I hate that. Uh, Wind sprints. And so we would get to the into practice, and he would say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick one player from the team, and he's going to come up to the foul line, and I don't know, he would change the number. Let's say he said, I'm going to give this player five shots at a free throw, and the deal is you have to make five out of five. You can't miss one. There has to be perfection. And he said, if, if that individual player made it, then the whole rest of the team didn't have to what? Didn't have to run. But if he missed one, just one, the whole team would have to do, I don't know, five wind sprints or whatnot. And so uh, sometimes he would pick a player like me. And so when they heard the coach said, Sheffer, all the players were like, oh, (laughs) we're going to run, you know. But most of the time he picked the best player, one of the top two or three players. And he would pick that player, and that player would act as our representative, would he not? He would act as our representative, and he would uh, shoot, and on a rare occasion, our best player would make five out of five. And in that moment, as he was acting as our representative, he met the standards of our coach, did he not? Perfection. And by doing so, we averted the wrath of our coach, which was wind sprints. And 
folks, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He was the one at the foul line, uh, meeting the holy standards of a perfect God, and he shot five in a row, and he made all five of them for us so that we would uh, take that righteousness, so it would be credited to us. Just like the best player, he made five in a row. I didn't make five in a row, but it was credited to me. Do you see that? It was credited to me as if I had gotten up there and made five in a row. His obedience, his perfection was shared with me. And that's exactly what the life of Christ does for you and me. And so first of all, the first distinguishing mark of this good news that we must delight in and share is the life of Christ in our place. Number two, the death of Christ. This is uh, more clear in verses 3 and 4. What we find out about Jesus' death is that uh, it was a substitutionary sacrifice. I'll say that again. It was a substitutionary, in our place, sacrifice, death, in place of us for our sins. Paul says it this way. Let's read it again. In verse 3, he said that Christ died. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. And so this is where Jerry McCorkle's big picture, big story, wide-angle view of the gospel is helpful. Because if you come to this text, uh, you have a lot of questions. You say, Christ, who's Christ? I don't know what that means. Messiah, Savior? I don't know. Died. Okay, I understand that concept. For our sins. Sins? What's that? What is sin? What, what, is that, what does that mean according to the scriptures? But if you have this wide-angle view, what you come to discover is that this is indeed good news because, as I said, we were created to love God, know him, worship him, delight in him, but we in our rebellion fell from that, and ever since then we've been full of corruption and evil and sin and death and everything that we see uh, even as we commemorate 9-11. There is atrocities that happen in our world, and not only is sin uh, us harming one another, but the point is that sin in the Bible is always extremely personal. Sin is a personal offense against God and against his holiness and against his standards. And so sin is not just our tendencies. It's not just a disorder. It's not just an addiction. It's directed at God primarily so that David in Psalm 51 can say, against you, O Lord, and against you alone have I sinned. What? (laughs) You slept with a lady. You committed adultery. And then you killed her husband. And you say that you just sinned against God? Well, of course he sinned against those two. But what David is pointing out for us is that sin, first and foremost, is against a holy God. That's what sin is. And because of that, God is perfectly just, perfectly holy, and we are deserving of just judgment, of just punishment. But Jesus was our substitutionary sacrifice. What does it mean, substitutionary? We all, we all know the idea of a substitute, do we not? When you go to school, back in your school days, and you went to, say, math class, and you found out that there was a substitute teacher... What did you do as a student? Be honest. You were like, yes, (laughs) right? You're like, we don't have to do work today, or they're going to give us coloring books, or tell us to do our math problems, but we don't have to do it, because there was a substitute teacher there that was taking the place, taking the place, the responsibilities of that teacher. What this scripture teaches us is that Jesus was our substitute. That is, he died in our place. He took something for us. And what he took for us was that his death was a sacrifice. Died for our sins. That is, God was angry at our sin. 
God was holy and he was just and full of wrath against our sins. And to this day, if we are not hidden in Christ through the faith, uh, through faith in what Christ has done, God is still angry at human sin. That has not changed. There is one way out, and that is through Christ. But we see that Christ was our substitute. He died for our sins in our place. He took God's wrath for us. There was a great exchange. Instead of us dying, both physically and spiritually, Jesus died both physically and spiritually in the sense that he bore God's wrath. So I want to share a clip with you that I've always found compelling. How many of you you have ever saw the movie Armageddon, 1998, Armageddon. Okay, Bruce Willis, a bunch of famous people. Uh, You probably know the plot line. I want to introduce just the clip that we're going to look at. It's always been a very compelling scene for me. Towards the end of the movie, we find out, or we know from the beginning, that there's an asteroid, a huge asteroid. They say the size of Texas, because Texas is big. Uh, just had to throw that out there. Uh, and so there's this asteroid that's coming to Earth, and what we decide to do is to get this kind of ragtag group of guys that they're drillers. They drill. And so we send these guys onto, if I'm not mistaken, onto this asteroid, and they're going to drill down to the, the center of this asteroid, and they're going to detonate, boom, a nuclear, blo- nuclear bomb, and everything's going to be fine, right? So towards the end of the movie, we find out that the remote, the remote detonator has been what? It's been damaged, right? And so what we find out is that somebody has to stay behind on the asteroid, sacrifice himself, substitute himself for the good of all humanity. And so let's begin the scene right where they find out that somebody has to do that. Hey, man, let's draw and let's see who's going to stay up here and dance. Guys, I know you guys think I'm crazy right now, but I would really like this responsibility. All right. All right. I can do it. Draw straws to get it over with. Come on. I ain't drawing against you, Harry. Well, I'm going to draw against you, chick, so you better just go ahead and do it. Just give me this thing. Is this good or bad? Well, you all got to die, right? I'm the guy who gets to do it saving the world. So, uh, let's go. We, we got about ten minutes, right? You plug this into the port. Lift, press, hold. That's it. Lift, press, hold. Shouldn't be too tough. Even I can't screw this up. I'll take him down. Mr. Truman, 
Isn't that such a moving scene? I mean, doesn't that stir your heart? I think it does is because we recognize that when somebody does something for somebody else, when somebody gives their life in place uh, of, of ours, that it's a noble and honor, honor and a, a, an incredibly loving thing. The point that I want to make is that not only did Jesus live for you, but Jesus died for you. That is, even though Jesus did not draw the short straw, Jesus did not end up with the short straw. We all essentially drew the short straw. We all deserved to die, physically, spiritually. Jesus did not draw the short straw, and yet he choose, uh, chose to take our place in death. He chose to substitute himself, as we see Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis did for Affleck, for the good of all. And so I want to ask at this point, if you've come to place your faith in that Christ, you've come to personally not just believe in your in your head but with your heart that Jesus Christ took your place that he died for you not just for everyone although that's gloriously true did he take your place did he switch with you in the rocket ship were you the one who should have been Ben Affleck and Jesus was the one who said no I'm going to do it and he throws you out into safety has that happened personally for you because if not um then you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And God's wrath and his justice is still against you. But the good news is that Jesus lived perfectly for you because we never could. And Jesus died taking the wrath of a holy God for us. So we see two distinguishing characteristics, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and then thirdly, the resurrection of Christ. In verse 4, we see that this too is an essential part of the gospel. Verse four, that he was buried, and we tend to look over that, but the truth is that Jesus Christ didn't fake death. He didn't feign death. He didn't take, you know, like a little uh, poison or something that would make him look dead. He didn't, he wasn't playing around. He didn't just go into the tomb and then resuscitate. The scriptures say over and over again that Jesus was really dead and that he was buried. And then the glorious news is that he, as Paul says, he was raised on the third day. And so the third element of the gospel is that not only did Jesus live the life that you and I never could in perfect obedience to a holy God, not only, not only did he die taking God's wrath for you in your place, it didn't stop there. I mean, just think about it. Let's say those first two, three, two, two things were true, but there was no resurrection then the first two things really weren't true. Jesus did not live for you. Jesus did not die for you. It was all a hoax. Everything he said was not true. Paul goes on in the rest of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, to talk about the results. He plays this game. He says, well, what if the resurrection didn't happen? What if it didn't happen? What if it's not true? Then what's, what's the reality? And he lists several things throughout this passage. He says, first of all, our preaching Jesus is useless. Why would you want to share about a guy who's dead? Why would you want to share about a guy who's dead? Secondly, he says our faith is in vain. That is, we're believing in a lie. It's a hoax. Don't believe. Stop going to church. Throw away your Bibles. It's just religion. 
if Jesus was not raised from the dead. He says we're liars about Christ. That is, when you go and you, you're having coffee with your neighbor and you're like, hey, can I, can I share with you something that's really important? And it's about this, this man, and his name's Jesus. And you, you have this conversation and you, and you share with them that Jesus lived for you and died for you and, and then he rose from the dead. What Paul says is, hey, you know what? You're a liar. <laughs> Just stop it. If Jesus was not raised, he says you're still in your sins. That is God's wrath and his anger is still against you. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, he said uh, next, he said those who have died, those of us who are Christians, those of us that we believe have placed their faith in Christ and they've passed on. He says, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then those people are lost. They're not with God. And then fourth, he makes this concluding statement. He says, And if Jesus was not raised from the dead, we are of all men to be most pitied. That is, we're buying a lie. We're believing a hoax. We're living for something that's just not real, is what he says. But the great news is that it's not a hoax and that it is real. The resurrection is an essential part of the gospel because it essentially serves as a, it's God's stamp of approval. You know what that term is? It's a stamp of approval. It's God's accepted, if you will. Jesus' perfect life and his substitutionary death. I have up here, um, I don't know if you can see this, but um, what do you think these are? Just from, what are these? Receipts. Okay, these are up till, I don't know, is this a month's worth, Shelly, wherever you are? This is maybe a month's worth of our receipts. I don't know, maybe more, maybe less. But there's a, there's a special place in Shelly's desk, and it's kind of the, res- the place where receipts go. Uh, now, I have a bad habit of holding on to receipts in my wallet, so where Shelly's like, we had such a good month, we didn't spend any money, and then she's like, where's your wallet? I'm like, oh, um, it's in the car, and I get it, and it's like fat. <laughs> She's like, oh, I thought we saved money. <laughs> uh, and then I, and, and I share all these receipts of everything that apparently just I've spent, you know. Uh, it's probably mostly me. But this is our receipt pile. And I don't know if you do this. We're, we keep a pretty good budget. I say we, I mean Shelly. She keeps a good budget for us, and we keep our, you know, finances in order. We know what's going on. Um, but the reason why we keep receipts is because why? Any, anyone want to take a guess why it is we keep receipts? Why do you might keep receipts? What, Dan? <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> My wife does make me, but why does she make me? That's the, that's the question. <laughs> the reason why she makes me do it is so that we can have record that all of the debt, all, everything that we owe, everything that we spent money on, we've actually paid for, right? So this indicates that what we have spent money on is, is paid for, so that somebody can't come back to me and say, you know what, that haircut, you didn't pay me, or you know what, that whatever it is that you bought, you didn't, you didn't pay for that. And we can say, yeah, we did. Let me show you. It's a receipt. A receipt is essentially a certificate. It's proof, it's evidence that something has been paid in full. This is what the resurrection is to the good news. This is what the resurrection is to the cross. It's God's paid in full. It's evidence that Jesus Christ has indeed paid for our sins. Haddon Robinson, the famous preacher, says it this way, and I'll quote him. He says, and I think it's on the screen, he says, when you buy something at a store, the clerk accepts your money and gives you a receipt confirming that the bill was paid for in full. If there is ever a dispute about whether the payment was made, all you have to do is produce your receipt. He applies it then. When Christ, when Jesus died, when Jesus cried, it is finished. He uttered the Greek words tetelestai, right Herb? Tetelestai, which means paid in full. 
Jesus on the cross paid in full. The payment for sin that God demanded has been paid. And the empty tomb, hear this, is proof that the payment was received and the debt was, been, was satisfied. The resurrection is our receipt from God the Father that he accepted his son's payment on the cross. And so this morning, I want to be very clear as we wrap up. There is a genuine gospel and there are many counterfeit gospels. We've seen from the U.S. government that there are a lot of different ways that we can tell the difference between a counterfeit and a real thing. But the best way to do it is to know what the real thing looks like, to know the characteristics of the real thing. Friends, this message that we share is the most important message that you can ever share with anybody. It is the best proclamation. It's the best news that anybody can ever hear but we have to be clear. We have to know what it is. We have to be able to spot, yeah, Jesus' life. Yes, Jesus' death. Yes, Jesus' resurrection. We have to be able to know the real thing or else we will be seduced and we will, God forbid, be sharing a counterfeit bill. We will be sharing a counterfeit gospel. And so by way of application, I want to ask you a couple things. Number one, how clear are you on the gospel? If you just happen to get into a conversation with somebody, what would you tell them? What would you say? Would you have the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? Would you define the gospel clearly? How well do you know the gospel? I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a music guy. I, I, I just pick up lyrics pretty, pretty well for the most part. So I hear a song once or twice. Maybe you're like this. If you hear a song once or twice, you just know it. You just know it. I can rattle off songs from the 80s that I, I probably shouldn't even know. <laughs> and I can just rattle them off. Not Ice Ice Baby, by the way. <laughs> We're not going to go there, although I probably could. Um, we know things. We know recipes by heart, don't we? Ladies, you know recipes by heart. So if I were to ask you, how do I make this? And you say, oh, I don't know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Da, da. You know exactly how you do it. Guys, we know football statistics about uh, university players or about the Bears. We know baseball stats. Maybe you know what uh, Sammy, how many you know, home runs Sammy Sosa hit in 1998 or what his batting average was or whatever. We fill our mind with things and, and there's clarity there. Let me ask you, how clear are you about the best news in the world? How clear are you? My prayer is that this will be a helpful tool for you to put in your tool belt so that you can be clear, one, as you share the gospel, and two, as we talk about for the next six weeks, the counterfeits. We're gonna begin talking about six different counterfeits, and we're gonna compare and contrast these counterfeits, and my hope is that you'll be able to have a clear definition Yes, this is there. Yes, this is there. Yes, this is there. So that when we line up the counterfeits against the real, you'll be able to see the difference. In closing, the Emperor Napoleon, the French conqueror from years ago, as tradition says, that he gave three commands to his couriers, couriers who would carry his messages all throughout the land, especially to his armies. And as the story goes, that he had... Um, Three commands, three specific things that every time he would give a message, after he would give a message, he would tell this three things to his emissaries, to his couriers, and the three commands were this. Be clear, be clear, and be clear. This morning, God is saying the same thing to us. We indeed are his couriers, his messengers for the gospel, and he is telling us, be clear, be clear, 
be clear. Let's pray.